0: The following audio is from Life Journey Church. More information about Life Journey Church is available at www.lifejourneyva.com. Today, we're continuing our journey through the book of Mark. We've been going verse by verse, starting in Mark one over a year one one over a year ago, and we're turning the page today to start chapter fourteen. And so we're getting close to the end, but we're going we're gonna to look at a question today that, that the answer to this question has ramifications that extend far beyond we could ever imagine. A question today that the, the ramifications, the answers has, has ramifications that extend beyond we could ever imagine. The account of Mark was primarily written for some Christians who were in the city of Rome just 20 to 30 years after Jesus was crucified. These Christians were huddled together in tombs underneath the city called catacombs, hiding for their lives. They didn't worship in freedom in a public school like we're doing today. They were literally hiding in the underground graveyards, hoping that the soldiers wouldn't find them because they knew that if they found them, the moment they found them, that would be their last moment. They were in fear for their lives the lives of their families, families, members who weren't Christians could have been tortured to give up the location of the Christians. It's a very hostile situation, very difficult to imagine situation. And I can only imagine, I don't know of any historical evidence, but I can only imagine that in the face of that persecution, in the face of that death, staring them at the door, I can only imagine that they thought the question, they considered the question, who is really in charge here? Who is really in control here? I mean, think about it. Their lives are hung in the balance of Caesar's will. Wouldn't it have been very easy for these believers to have said that Caesar was in control of their lives and not God? Now I know that we don't live in fear today in underground tombs basically waiting for soldiers to come in and find us and put animal skins on us and then feed us to wild beasts. We, we, I, we don't live in that sort of fear, but we have all, I would imagine, thought, considered this question. Who really is in control of my life? I have a friend here who's from Lynchburg, and when he was around 40, I think, right, right when you're turning 40 years old, he went to the dentist, just a normal dentist visit he walked away with the news that he had an aggressive cancer on his tongue who was in control then god or cancer in our faith family weekend friday and saturday i sat there and i shared our story of three years of having three miscarriages who was in control of that god or death So whether it's losing your job or losing your spouse of 50 years, whether it's going through life single and unmarried and and lonely or going through life married but yet lonely, whatever we find ourselves, whether it's through cancer, disease, bankruptcy, divorce, disappointment, broken hearts, or simply the common cold, whatever we're facing, I think we've probably entertained the thought of who's really in control of this. Who's really in charge? We don't have time, unfortunately, to consider each and every individual scenario that we might be facing in our lives today, but this is what I would like for us to do in our time remaining. I'd like for us to consider an event, an event in human history that we would all agree upon is the most paramount event of all history, an event so huge that if we can see that God was in control of that paramount event, then because of how huge that event was, then no event that we could ever go through in our lives would be too big or too small for God not also to be in control of. So what's an event? What's a possibly an event that, that the entirety of human history hinged upon? Well, there's some big events. Think of the various world wars, being Veterans Day tomorrow, we think of the wars and the massive amounts of loss of life. What if Hitler had won? Well, that, that was a huge event that changed the course of human history. But I'm talking about an event much bigger than that. Well, what about the discovery of the New World in the 1400s? What about that? Certainly, that changed the course of human history. And yeah, it, it was a big event. We wouldn't be sitting here if, if it didn't happen. But now I'm talking about something much bigger than that. What about the moment in human history when God himself clothed himself in flesh and hung, suspended between heaven and earth, the person Jesus Christ, as he died there for the sin of people? I'd suggest that there's not an event in human history bigger than this you might disagree with me but i would say majoritively speaking we say that there's nothing bigger than the cross nothing bigger in human history than that event but here's what i want us to consider this morning if god was in complete control of the slaying of jesus christ then i think it can be assumed that he was in complete control before the cross and listen and that he is still in complete control of the things that we walk through in our daily life. Tell me, if he was in control of something that big, is there something that you can face today that's bigger than that? I'm not trying to make light of what we walk through because it's heavy things that we walk through. I'm not trying to make light of it. But listen, if God was in control of that, I am pretty sure he's in control of what we're facing today. So here's the question. Who killed the Son of God? Who killed Jesus? Well, we might think, well, the answer, well, Pilate, right? Didn't he sign the sentence, wash his hands and say, fine, do it? We say the Jews, they would say, let his blood be on and on our, upon our children. We say that it was the Romans who, who actually nailed him to the tree. It was Herod who passed on him. It was us and our sin that hung him there. And, and certainly those things are, are, are partially correct, but... But who actually killed the Son of God? Well, let's don't wait any longer. Let's turn to Mark 14. Let's see this. Let's see this culminating event. and see who's in charge of this, the slaying of God's Son. We're going to start in verse 1. And the, verse 1 says, Now it was two days before the Passover and the feast of the unleavened bread. we got pause right here for a second if you're new with us we kind of read a little bit we talk a little bit we read a little bit talk a little bit and then we wrap it all up in a, in a thought but this this is one of the biggest celebrations this passover and the feast of the unleavened bread this is one of the biggest celebrations all year long hundreds and thousands if not millions of jews from around the roman world would would descend upon jerusalem during this week end-long celebration of God's mercy and his kindness for passing over their forefathers in Egypt and rescuing them out of Egypt. So during this time of the year, which is usually March, April, the city is filling with people. There's so much people that there's no room hardly to even walk through the city streets. There's no way of getting, no chance of getting a room in a hotel. The hotels are full, the restaurants are full, and, and, and this huge crowd has descended to celebrate God's mercy so against this context of the city filling up with just tons of people celebrating the merciful work of God of passing over their forefathers and delivering them from Egypt we see that the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how they how seeking seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him for they said Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar amongst the people. These religious leaders, the chief priests and the scribes, this is what we know of as the Sanhedrin. It's the group of, we've been talking about them for several weeks now, this group of religious men. They have wanted Jesus dead for quite some time now. Jesus has claimed to be able to forgive sins. He has massive crowds following his every move. He speaks against their religious practices of trying to impress God with how they dress and how they talk and how they work. He, Jesus has even said that if you see him, if you see Jesus, you have actually also seen the Father. Jesus has cursed the entire temple system and he has called these religious elite, he's called them hypocrites. It was time for this nagging bother to be silenced once and for all in the minds of the Sanhedrin. They have tried to silence him by asking questions in order to trap him in his words. They've tried to silence him by throwing an adulterous sinner at his feet and saying, okay, Jesus, what should we do with her? For the law says we should stone her. In all of their earthly wisdom and clever, deceptive schemes, they have not been able to silence this pesky carpenter from Galilee whose teaching about the heart of God was a heart that is merciful and kind and loving and forgiving and generous. And this was too scandalous for the religious leaders to buy into. He must be silenced once and for all. They couldn't shut him up with their questions. They couldn't trap him in their clever schemes. So all that's left for them to take his life, to murder this man who is saying that he speaks the very words of God. But Right in the middle of this description that Mark gives of of this hatred and this anger from the Sanhedrin, right in the middle of this, Mark totally puts on the brakes. He pushes in the clutch and he goes from like one gear to the other. I don't know, i don't drive an auto manual. So whatever that looks like for you guys who are cool. He he totally shifts gears. He'll come back to this plot of the Sanhedrin at the end of our passage today. But he totally shifts gears and starts talking about something completely different. I pray that you get where we're about to go right here. I hope we're zoning in with what's happening here in Mark 14. I like sandwiches, I think most of us do. I like sandwiches. Every Sunday we go to a subway and we eat a sandwich, That's probably where we'll go this afternoon. But I've never seen a sandwich defined by the bread. Maybe there is one out there. But I've always seen a sandwich defined by what's in between the two slices of bread. So if I were to ask you what's your favorite sandwich, you wouldn't say a bread sandwich. You say a turkey sandwich. It's turkey's in between bread. right? It's called a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Why? Because there's peanut butter and jelly inside of the sandwich. There's little pleasure in just eating two pieces of bread with nothing in between. Maybe that's your thing. It's not mine. I want some meat, some cheese, some condiments, some lettuce, tomatoes, right? At bare minimum, some peanut butter, right? Here's what I want us to see. Verses 1 and 2, we've got some bread. Bread. In a minute, we'll see verses 10 and 11, another slice of bread. But verses three through nine, we've got some of the most beautiful meat of the gospel that you will ever see. If we just look at verses one and two and look at verses 10 and 11, we'll come away thinking that mankind has overpowered God himself and man has slain the son of God and that man was in control. But if we see what's happening in verses three through nine, we'll see the heart of the father. We'll see the fact that it was his desire for his son to suffer so that you could now be a part of him. This is big. I hope that in the next couple of minutes, our religious, legalistic, man-centered minds will just completely be blown off our shoulders. And that God will reveal to us the heart of the Father. So verse 3 is completely changed, a completely different context. We've got this hatred and this vile and this anger of the Sanhedrin, verse 1 and 2, and now we totally switch gears verse 3. Let's get into this meat. Verse 3, while he was in Bethany, in the house of Simon the leper. So apparently... Jesus, there's no room for people to actually stay in Jerusalem, so they're a couple miles away in a town called Bethany to sleep at night. And he's in the house of this man named uh, Simon, who was a leper. Now, I would say he was a leper because if he still had leprosy, then he wouldn't be welcome in the town. He would have to be ostracized and separated from the people. Now, I don't know if, uh, if Jesus was the one who healed him. Maybe you guys, somebody knows out there of passage that said that Jesus healed Simon. I'm not familiar with it. But he probably did. And this man who once had leprosy, who stared certain death and absolute isolation in the face daily, is now reclining at the table with Jesus. This is so cool. This is so cool. This is such a perfect picture of us born isolated, staring good as dead in the death in the face, separated from God. But because of the work of Jesus, we now are alive and seated with him in the heavenly realms. And what a cool picture. So Jesus is sitting here in Simon's house, this man who's been cured. And as he's sitting there, Jesus was reclining at the table and a woman came. Now, I know this doesn't read strange for us today in the 21st century, but women we were not permitted to come into a man, men's dinner. Now, I know that sounds strange for us today, but this was the culture that Jesus was alive, uh, that Jesus lived in. The culture in which he lived, women were not valued much at all. Jesus certainly valued them. Right? When they threw this adulterous woman at his feet, Jesus says, Okay, you who without sin cast the first stone. So Jesus valued them, but the culture did not. And so this woman bursts in, a marginalized outsider, bursting in into a male-only dinner. This simply did not happen. I wish I could paint a better picture of just how foreign this concept was in their culture. But she didn't just walk in. She didn't just bust in. The Bible says that she came with an alabaster flask of an ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. What is this woman doing? Who is this woman, first of all? Well, Mark doesn't even give us her name. In John's account of this event, he gives us her name, but Mark doesn't, because I think that Mark doesn't want to make this about the woman herself. We'll come back to that later. But she bursts in Into this men-only dinner, something that simply isn't done, and she takes a bottle of very expensive, pure ointment, she shatters the bottle, and she pours it all over Jesus. Again, in John's account of this, he says that there's so much oil, so much ointment, that it's actually all over his feet as well, and she takes her hair and wipes his feet, a sign of humility and service to Jesus. There are four words in this verse that I want us to take a look at. Four words. The first word is the word, pure. This ointment was pure. It wasn't diluted with other spices. It was pure nard. Nard was a very rare and thus very expensive oil. Many times it was mixed with other spices and chemicals to go further, but Mark specifies that it was pure. It was genuine. It was not mixed with anything else. It was 100% nard. Nard was used for all sorts of things, including a really cool, funny word, nard. But it was, it was used for all sorts of things. But, but the primary use of nard was to anoint the bodies of dead people so that the stench of the dying flesh would be masked. So this is a very powerful, very potent aroma. Anyone close by Jesus for weeks, if not months, would smell the ointment on him. It was very powerful. The second word I want us to see in that, in that verse is the word costly. Very costly. It was expensive. This wasn't just some sort of cheap Walmart knockoff brand of perfume. This was very, very expensive. In a minute, we'll see his disciples say that this could have been sold for 300 denarii, which means, it, we'll talk about it in a second, but it's, it's as much as $50,000 in our economy Today it would have been impossible for a woman to have earned enough money to have purchased this. So this was probably a family heirloom. It was probably a retirement account. It was probably the nest egg for the entire family that generations had saved up for so that when hard times came, there would be something to fall back on and this woman takes it. And she, our third word I wanna look at, she broke it. She broke this expensive pure nard. She shattered it. The container holding this valuable ointment was now in pieces on the floor, never to be used again. There was no thought in this woman's mind of saving some of the nard to be used later. The container was shattered to pieces. And she, our fourth word I want us to see, she poured. She poured it out. This this perfectly pure, expensive ointment. She broke the jar. She poured it out. Emptying it onto the head of Jesus. It was pure, expensive. It was shattered. It was poured. Can you, can you imagine this scene? This is very descriptive. I love these kind of texts where you can almost see what's happening. Can you smell the, the potent aroma of this pure, expensive perfume where you, you can't be within a block of this house and not smell this stuff? Can you hear the sound of the flask being broken on the floor? Can you see the shattered pieces of this glass or or pottered flask littering the ground? Can you see this woman who disregarded the shame she knew she would get for wasting so much precious uh, stuff and, and yet she valued Jesus so much that she gladly, selflessly anointed his body? Can you see this? Can you imagine this? Man, this is unbelievable. This did not happen in their culture. It was unheard of beyond imagination. Well, let's see the response of some of Jesus' disciples. and In verse 4, it says that some were there who said to themselves indignantly, why has this ointment been wasted like that? The literal translation is, why has this waste of ointment been made? Why has this destruction of ointment been made for this ointment verse five could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor and they scolded her this english word that we read scolded it it really means that the idea of being so furious that your nostrils begin to flare all you who have mamas know exactly what that looks like nostrils begin to flare It was actually used to describe bulls who were being antagonized by the matador. The bulls with their pawing hoof into the soil and snouting out through their flaring nostrils, wanting to put their horn through the gut of the matador. This is the picture, this is the word used to describe the anger of these disciples, these men who were with Jesus at this woman. They weren't just shaking their finger and saying, shame on you, you shouldn't have done that. They were furious to the point that their nostrils were flaring in anger. They couldn't believe that a woman had interrupted their dinner, and on top of that, that she had wasted this expensive, pure nard ointment. So expensive, it could have been sold for 300 denarii. Denarii. Denarii is a car. Denarii. Denarii. She sold it. She could have been sold. And that amount is the amount of money that a typical wage earner would. Earn in a year, so depending on the community, it could be fifty thousand dollars. In Manhattan, I don't know what the average earning is; probably hundred thousand. I don't know. Depending on the city, depending on the culture, a whole year's worth of wages this woman has wasted. These men couldn't believe that she's destroyed it. They wanted her to feed the poor with it. But verse six, join with me. Jesus says to her, "Leave her alone." <laughs> Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. Jesus steps in between the stewing bulls and this woman, they want to destroy her because she's destroyed this ointment and Jesus tells them, verse seven, for you always have the poor with you and whenever you want, you can do good to them but you will not always have me. She has done what she could, verse eight, she has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Jesus reveals that there's something much bigger happening here. Something much bigger than just a nameless woman interrupting dinner and wasting $50,000 worth of perfume. Jesus has said that she's done this in preparation for my burial. Oh, what does that mean? Well, in a couple of weeks we'll get to the cross and we'll get to his burial. But you can go ahead and read ahead of time and see that there wasn't time to actually pour perfumes onto Jesus's body after the cross because the day was ending and night was coming, which meant that the Passover was coming and it was against the religious rules to anoint dead bodies on Passover. And so they took the body of Jesus off the cross and they put him directly into a tomb. And three days later, some women came to then pour oil and ointment on his body and they saw something that they couldn't believe. A stone that was rolled away and a Jesus that was alive now, who was once dead. So Jesus is saying here that his death is coming and this nameless woman has actually prepared his body for burial Jesus' arrest and crucifixion would only be like a day after this meal right here. Only a day after she pours this potent perfume on his head. The aroma of this pure nard would have been filling the air around Jesus everywhere he went. Think about this. The very next day he's in the garden crying out to the Father. And you could smell, if you were close by, this pure nard coming from his head body when judas came up to give jesus a kiss on the cheek what did judas smell this ointment this nard this beautiful perfume as he was on trial in the courts as he was beaten and mocked by soldiers this powerful aroma of this expensive pure nard would have filled the air around him as he walked down the via Dolorosa rosa towards calvary the strong smell of this ointment would have filled the air at the cross even the tomb during these three days. Man, what a powerful thought. Such a beautiful aroma in the air amidst such suffering by our Lord. What a beautiful picture of the Father's hearts. I hope you see this. Amidst sorrow, there was a sweet smell. Amidst pain, there was a pleasant perfume. Amidst beatings, there was a beautiful smell odor amidst death there was a delightful aroma what a picture of the father's heart against the sorrow of seeing his own son suffer for and die for the sins of people the father was delighted there was a sweet aroma coming from this the father was pleased isaiah 53 says to crush his son the father was pleased to put him to grief because in doing so He was making a name for himself by redeeming a people for himself. In the suffering of Jesus on the cross, the Father was purchasing for himself people who would be his. He would be their God and they would be his people. So amidst the sorrow of Jesus' suffering and dying, the Father, as Jeremiah 31 says, the Father was forgiving the iniquity of his people. And as a result of that forgiveness, he no longer, Jeremiah 31, 37, he no longer holds our sins against us. He no longer remembers our sins any longer. The painful suffering of the Messiah guaranteed a sweet, beautiful salvation for those who believe. What an awesome picture. What an awesome picture. This powerful smelling aroma in the midst of his suffering. The thieves on the cross. They see with their eyes a, a body that's been crushed, but they smell with their nostrils pure nard. This is the meat. Verses 3-9. through nine. This gives us a picture of the Father's heart who Romans 8 says did not spare His own Son, but the Father, the Father delivered Him over for us. So that we can now be sons and daughters, united to him, one with him, at peace with him, at rest with the father, all because the father crushed his son in order to eliminate our sin, in order to bring us to him. What a daddy! What a father! What love. What grace, what mercy that we see. With our eyes, we see the beaten body, but with our nostrils, we smell a sweet aroma. Because even in the beating and the crushing of his son, it was done for a very pleasing thing to the father, so that you would be now adopted into his family. This is our dad, he's not harsh. He's not angry any longer at your sin because he crushed his son so that there is no more sin remaining between you and he. In Exodus 34, the entire full glory of the Father was passed in front of a man named Moses. And in that moment, the Father introduced himself to Moses. And this is what he said in Exodus 34. As he introduced, as he defined who he is, he says, I am the Lord, the Lord God. Listen, listen compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgressions, and sins. If you believe in Jesus, that is, if you have transferred your trust from trusting in your own goodness to trusting in Jesus' goodness. You no longer trust that you have what it takes to get to the Father, but you believe that Jesus that Jesus alone has what it takes to get to the Father. This is your Father. He's full of compassion. He's full of mercy, full of grace, full of love, full of truth, who's forgiven all your iniquity, all your transgressions, all your sins. So who is it that killed Jesus? The Father. The Father crushed His own Son to reveal to you this morning just how compassionate, how gracious, how loving and merciful He is. To you, once a sinner, once separated from Him, now forgiven, now complete, now united to Him. He put all your sin on His Son. Jesus became sin and was crushed by the Father's wrath against sin. Why? So that the fame of God will be spread to the entire world. So that the entire world can look upon this name, this person Jesus, and believe in him. He took your ashes and he gave you his beauty to show all of creation how forgiving and merciful he is. It's who he is compassionate and merciful. But you must believe in Jesus. Only in Jesus is there forgiveness. Only in Jesus is there compassion. Only in Jesus is there mercy. Only in Jesus you must be in Jesus. Well, this is too much for Judas. Let's pick up in verse 10. Verse 1 and 2, piece of bread. 3 through 9, oh, the beautiful meat of what's really happening. And now the top piece of bread. Then Judas Iscariot, who is one of the 12... He went into the chief priest and ordered uh, in order to betray Jesus to them. Verse 11, and when they heard it, they were glad and they promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. You see, if you just read verses 1 and 2, and and you just read verses 10 and 11, you get a picture of men overpowering God and controlling God in the flesh and finally, finally sentencing him to death. But the Sanhedrin didn't kill Jesus. Judas, he didn't kill Jesus. The Romans, they didn't kill Jesus. The Jews, the Gentiles, they didn't kill Jesus. Satan himself didn't even kill Jesus. Jesus says in John 10, no one takes my life from me. No one takes it, but I willingly lay it down on my own initiative. And I have the authority to take it back up. And Jesus says, this commandment or this instruction, this mission, I have received from the Father. Sure, the Sanhedrin, the Judas, Pilate, Herod, sure, all those guys, they were used by the sovereign Father to carry out the action. But it was always the predetermined plan of the Father for his own namesake to crucify his Son on your behalf. What mercy, what grace. You see, like this nameless woman interrupting dinner, which in itself was just unthinkable. This woman who destroyed a bottle of expensive pure ointment by pouring it out completely. Just like her, the father interrupted human history, which was unthinkable to this religious culture. They were so wrapped up in working to try to get to God that they thought it, it couldn't imagine God working to come down to man. Like this unnamed woman, the father destroyed something very valuable to him, something very pure, his own son, Jesus. The body of Jesus broken. The body of Jesus shattered. The body of Jesus destroyed. The perfect, pure blood of Jesus on the cross was poured out. Blood not tainted, not mixed with sin, not tainted with iniquities, not tainted with lust and greed and pride and selfishness. Blood not tainted with wickedness like our blood, but His body was broken and His perfect, pure, untainted blood flowed from His body until He died. This priceless, perfect blood was shed to remove sin to settle the Father's righteous and holy judgment against our sin so that we can now stand in Christ covered with his righteousness. All our sin, even sin that we have yet to commit, totally removed from our account. We are now in Christ a royal nation, a holy nation, a royal priesthood. We are now in Christ complete. We are now in Christ United to the Father through Jesus. We are now in Christ, sanctified, cleansed, in splendor, with no spot or wrinkle, holy, blameless, with no blemish at all. Ephesians 5. You might say, now wait a second, Walt. Now wait a second. I sinned today, so I'm not that anymore. Listen, there's good news. Hebrews 9.22 says that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. So if all your sin was not atoned for on the cross, and there's still sin as you commit on a daily basis that you've got to get right, then you must call down Jesus from heaven, put him on a cross, and shed his blood again for your sin. Because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. What Jesus did on the cross, he did once and for what? For all. Once and for all, never to do it again. Listen to Jeremiah 31. It says, God says, the day is coming when I will forgive their iniquity, and the day is coming when I will no longer remember their sin. That day came 2,000 years ago on a mountain called Calvary. Listen to 1 John 2.12 that says, I'm writing you little children because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. Listen to Hebrews 10. It says, but Christ has suffered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, and he sat down at the right hand of the Father. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. And he says, I, Hebrews 10, will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Listen to Ephesians 1. In him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he has lavished upon us. I think it's time for us to stop arguing with God about this. He crushed his son once, and that one crushing of his son was done to put an end to, to every single sin that was put on Jesus. Jesus. He was the father's precious treasure. Jesus was the loved and perfect son of God. He was sent to earth to show us this love. Jesus, he was perfect and holy, yet he gave himself up willingly. Like this unnamed woman, the Father spared no expense to pardon and purchase us from our sin. On the cross, Jesus himself was broken and poured out. His life was used up. His life was destroyed for us. God's most precious treasure, the perfect life-giving blood of the Son, was lavished. you, on me. Jesus was broken and poured out for you. Do you believe this? It's hard to believe, isn't it? It really is. It's hard to believe. It sort of sounds a little foolish even. I mean, why would he do this? Why would he interrupt human history and waste something like that? Well, that's the exact question that these men asked the woman in Mark 14. Remember? They said, why has this waste, why has this destruction of the ointment been made? They thought it was foolish. They didn't get it. They were indignant. Their nostrils flaring. Can you answer this question about Jesus? Why has this destruction of Jesus been made? Why has this crushing, this wasting of Jesus, been made. It was made, listen, please listen, it was made to reveal to us the heart of the Father, compassionate, merciful, gracious, loving, forgiving, so that anyone who believes in Jesus would pass from death into life, so that anyone who believes in Jesus would not come into judgment, but come into rest. Why was it made? It was made so God could be our God. So that the Father could be our Father. So that we could be his sons and his daughters. Why was it made? It was made to free us from any and all attempts to fruitlessly work to get to him because he has done the work of uniting us to him for anyone who believes. I hope we see the heart of the Father this morning. If there's anyone out here today who does not trust in Jesus yet, I beg you, I plead with you, I implore you to begin now trusting in this work of Jesus. Begin now trusting that he bore your sins, that he was broken and spilled out for you. For those who do believe in Jesus, I pray that our minds are forever changed about the Father, He's not some harsh, distant, cold, against us kind of angry man. He's full of compassion, mercy, love, and grace to the point of even crushing his own son to secure your place in his family. I'm going to ask our band to come on up and get ready to lead us in some more worship through music. And as they get in the place, this is where we're going to land this plane this morning. The meat of verses three through nine show us that the Father was in complete control of the cross. When Jesus hung on the cross on the mountain called Calvary, the Father wasn't surprised. It was his plan to reveal himself to you today in order to adopt you into his family. The Father was in complete control, even down to the details of pre-anointing jesus's body before death because he knew there wouldn't be time to do it after his death and in so doing throughout the court trials the beatings the suffering on the cross there was a beautiful aroma filling the air everywhere for those who are new with us we we try to walk out with just a simple idea a simple sentence that we call our journey marker Hopefully it reminds us all week long of what we talked about this morning. In our community groups, we get into into more practical application of this journey marker. I encourage you to attend a community group this week. But here's our journey marker for today. If the Father was in control at Mount Calvary, he's still in control no matter how difficult my life may be. If he was really in control, as we've seen today at Mount Calvary, then he's still in control no matter how difficult your life may be. Can we objectively with a sober mind say that anything we face today could possibly be greater than what happened on Mount Calvary? No way. Again, I'm not trying to take away from the the pain that we're seeing and the agony that we face every day. Cancer, miscarriages, divorce, death, abandonment, you name it. These are unbearable. But nothing we could face Could ever be bigger than what happened that day on the cross. So, if the Father was in control then, we know He's in control now. He's trustworthy. He might not work out things the way you think He ought to, but do you really want things to be worked out the way you think they should be worked out or the way that the Father knows it's best for them to be worked out? Let's just trust the Father. We've seen a picture of his heart this morning. He was in complete control. He always was, and he always will be. We are called to trust, to believe that he will work together all things for our good. We have to trust that he knows our good better than we know our good. And that's hard. That's hard at times. But consider this. Even Jesus asked that there be another way. In the garden, he prayed. He said, let this cup pass to be another way. Let it be, but not my will, but your will be done. Even Jesus asked for another way, something other than Calvary. But the father knew that even the cross was the best thing for his son. You see, before the cross, Jesus was a mystery throughout the Old Testament. He was there, but it was a mystery. They knew about the Father, a little bit about the Spirit, but the Son, it was a mystery. Paul says in Colossians 1 that Jesus was a mystery, hidden from eternity past. But after the cross, Jesus was revealed. He was made manifest, and he has been revealed to the saints, and that he now has been elevated to a name that is above every name. So every knee will bow to his name. Every tongue will confess his name. That Jesus, once scorned, is now Lord. Let's trust the Father's heart. Father, we pray this morning that our minds would be changed to realize just who you are, just what you've done. God, you have Remove from us our sin as far as the east is from the west so that we now have union with you. Unbelievable. Amazing. So, Father, if there's anyone here today who does not trust in Jesus, God, may this be their day. For those who are struggling still to see You as loving and compassionate and merciful. God, may they see the cross. May they they smell the uh, beautiful aroma coming from the very body of Jesus as He hung there. Showing that even through the pain of crushing Your Son, there was a beautiful result. The church. The redeemed. who are now Yours. Father, we thank You. Thank you for listening to this message from Life Journey Church. Feel free to distribute this podcast, but please, do not charge for it or alter it in any way. For more information about Life Journey Church, visit us at www.lifejourneyva.com.